Yes, yes, yes. Up. Welcome. Episode nine. Season two of everyone's favorite podcast, Journeys into Whiteness. I'm your host, as always, Jimmy Lincoln. If you're a first time listener, and this is the beginning of you joining me and my other listeners on this journey, welcome. If you're a long time listener, welcome back. And yeah, let's hop to it. We got a whole lot of shit to cover today. Whole lot of shit. Season two is wrapping up rapidly. This is our penultimate episode in season two. And I want to talk about, well, a lot of shit, but most specifically monuments. Monuments to the Confederacy. Monuments and memorials to Confederate leaders. I want to talk about the persistence of these tangible reminders of the lost cause mythology and its power. Its power in Southern society, but its power in our collective American memory. And so I want to start off with, that's our focus, that's our nexus, but I want to allow that discussion, like always, to kind of branch in a few different directions. Because I think if we're not careful collectively as people who are working to fight against ideas of racism and white supremacy, if we're not careful in our efforts to push back against the lost cause and the glorification of the Confederacy, that the solutions that we come up with aren't going to be nearly as effective as we think they may be. And I just combined the words might and may, and I said may be, and I think that could be a new fucking word. That's pretty sweet. Before we move forward with this discussion, and as someone who has been born and raised and lived most of his life in the South, in particular in the state of Virginia, we're going to start off this discussion with just a, a cursory glance at how, how much the Confederacy is memorialized in this state and in this region. And then we're going to branch into how that's beginning to change in the 21st century and how we better be careful collectively as a society, how we go about addressing the glorification of the Confederacy, the glorification of the Civil War from a Southern perspective. And you might hear me, and you've already heard me, use the phrase lost cause or lost cause mythology. And for those of y'all who aren't historians, that's kind of an umbrella term that refers to an entire mindset, an entire perspective on the Civil War and on the South in general that is incredibly forgiving, if not celebrating, of the Confederacy and its reason for existing and and of the entire pre-Civil War period in the South. And lost cause mythology has been propped up by professional historians, by local chapters of things like the Daughters of the Confederacy, by individual Southerners, by educational institutions, by textbooks. Anyone who's, who's journeyed with me through season one knows about the role that my grandfather's textbook, for instance, played in propping up this mythology. So lost cause mythology can mean a lot of things. But in short, it basically means glorifying the Confederacy, glorifying the people who fought for the Confederacy, and 100% either apologizing or, more often than not, ignoring the reason that the Confederacy came into existence. So it means shuffling the, the issue of slavery, pushing slavery off to the side, so much so that it's not even really discussed. It's an erasure of history. So the lost cause mythology merges in the South in the 1880s, 1890s, 
really grows powerful in the early 20th century and is still with us today. And so the most tangible evidence of the lost cause mythology that I'm going to discuss a lot today are the monuments and memorials to the Civil War and more specifically to military leaders from the Civil War, men like Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, Jefferson Davis, and even more obscure figures that often have local connections. And so we'll talk about those monuments and those memorials and and just about a million issues, like always, related to them. But before I get to these monuments and memorials and before I talk about how we better be careful and how we address them. And and mind you, when I say we better be careful, I'm not making the argument for anybody who's a little nervous. I'm not going to make the argument that we shouldn't tear these motherfuckers down at all. That's not my argument. No, they all need to be torn down from public spaces. Monuments to men who fought simply so that others could be enslaved have no place in our society. I'll be very clear on that. And if anyone thinks the Civil War was about anything other than the enslavement of human beings, I have news for you. You had shitty history teachers and you read shitty history books. Because if history is all about engaging with evidence of the past and making meaning of the past based on that evidence, then there is only one conclusion, that the Civil War was entirely about the idea of southern states wanting to continue to enslave millions about four and a half to five million, depending on whose count you look at, millions of human beings. That's what the Civil War was about. That's why it was fought. Now, that doesn't mean that individual soldiers in the Civil War who supported the Confederacy and fought for the Confederacy necessarily on a personal level level fought for the Confederacy because they loved the system of enslaving other humans that existed throughout the region or that they even owned slaves. The vast majority of Confederate soldiers were not slave owners. Most of them were entirely too poor to be able to afford to purchase, in quotes, another human, to enslave another human. But that doesn't mean they didn't fight, whether they consciously did or not, to support a system of not only the enslavement of of other humans, but a system of white supremacy that grew out of that enslavement. So let's get that clear first. Tear these fucking monuments and memorials down. Let's be very, very clear. The Civil War was is not a complicated war. All right. But first, before I jump into the actual monuments that are still all over the South or still being fought about all over the South, I want to tell you all a little story that doesn't involve me, but I might have some listeners who were at this event who experienced this event, who were traumatized by this event. The year is 1992, 1993, perhaps. I was either a freshman or a sophomore in high school. I believe a freshman, maybe a sophomore. But either way, I wasn't cool enough to get invited to cool parties. And so I heard about this event after it happened. And as you all know, as a teenager, when you hear about parties, even this event, which was a horrific, horrific event, hearing about it after the fact also gives you always that little pang of, shit, why didn't I know about this ahead of time? And the reason I didn't know about it is because I wasn't fucking cool. Nobody even thought to tell me about it. Why would they? But I grew up, as most of my faithful listeners know, I grew up in the city of Harrisonburg, Virginia, which is in the Shenandoah Valley, which is in the western part of Virginia. And this party took place about 20 or 30 minutes outside of Harrisonburg in a more rural area, a whiter area. And not that Harrisonburg was incredibly diverse, but mimicking patterns, and we've discussed these patterns a lot, but mimicking patterns all over this country where urban areas tend to be more diverse, urban areas, even if they're not diverse, tend to be blacker than surrounding rural areas. That's kind of what happens in the Shenandoah Valley. So that even though Harrisonburg is not an incredibly big city, and even though it's not, even though it's not an incredibly diverse city, it's still bigger and more diverse than the surrounding countryside. And there was a party at the home of a white female 
and her social circle kind of intersected with the social circle. She didn't go to our high school. Her social circle, she went to a nearby high school, a rural high school. Her social circle overlapped and intersected with the social circle of some of the people who did go to our high school. Some of the popular kids. And she had a party. And invited kids from her high school and invited kids from my high school. And it was a mixed race party. There were black kids. There were white kids. 1992, 93, mind you. This is not 1953. Although what I'm about to tell you is going to sound like 1953. And like any high school party, there's drinking. There's probably some weed being smoked. Who else knows what else? Dancing, music, you name it. And at some point in the evening, as this party is going on, I don't even know how large, but fairly I don't know, 100 people, let's say, you know, fairly large party. Some point in the evening, a group of 15 to 20, maybe a few more white teenagers, maybe even some of them were in their early 20s, with guns and bats and other weapons, ambushed this party and began assaulting Pretty much everyone there, but especially the the black party goers. And I have friends who were at this party, friends that I'm still close with, who had guns in their face. Guns pointed at them. There were gunshots being fired in the air, I believe. I could be off on some of these details, so like always, listeners, when I give you my email and contact information at the end, feel free to to correct and clarify my story. Cars were being vandalized. People were being assaulted. Thank God, honestly, the more I think about it as an adult, it's it's somewhat surprising that someone escaped them without being shot or killed. But without any kind of sensationalizing, basically a modern day KKK showed up at this party looking to assault as many black party goers as they could and their white friends. And the friends of mine who attended this party were injured. Many of them feel lucky to have escaped without being killed or seriously injured permanently. That's how fucking, for lack of a better word, how real this horrific incident of racialized white supremacist violence was in 1992 and 1993. And I don't believe, I could be wrong, I don't believe police or law enforcement was ever involved after the fact investigating or anything like that. But the reason I'm telling you all this story, this horrifically traumatic, violent incident is because I think this story of black and white teenagers hiding in closets, praying for their life as other white teenagers with guns and weapons maraud through a party threatening their life The reason I'm telling you this story about people being afraid that they would be killed simply because they were at a party where black and white teenagers were mixing. The reason I'm telling you this story is because I think this story is a tangible consequence, a tangible result, a concrete effect of what happens when we as a society, a collective society, as a collective community, fail to adequately address our past, fail to adequately address glorification of the Confederacy and the white supremacy ethos and mythos that the Confederacy was built on. And once again, if you have any doubts about what the Confederacy was all about, the documents, the tangible proof that can establish that are available. They are archived. You can Google that shit. You can read 
the secession documents published by individual states. You can read the Confederate Constitution. You can read statements by men like Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, men like Jefferson Davis. And it's very clear the Confederacy was about the enslavement of people of African descent and about the main maintenance, about maintaining the system of racial white supremacy, the hierarchy of white supremacy that grew out of that enslavement. That's what the Confederacy was all about. And so I think this violent event in 1992 and 93, where 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old young people were worried that they might die simply for being black or for being at a party where black people were in attendance. I think this racialized violence is a tangible, concrete result of what happens when the Confederacy is glorified and when that glorification is not addressed head-on, soberly and honestly by by us collectively in the 21st century. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my hypothesis is totally off base. And maybe, because some of y'all, and I run into this all the time with young people, but even adults who just kind of believe that, that racism and racialized animosity is just a permanent fixed thing. And once again, that's not historical. There's no evidence to support that viewpoint. But I understand why it feels that way, especially if you're black. I understand if you were black in America, you feel like racism, because it has been in the United States from the beginning, feels like racism is a permanent, immutable fact. And that it's just always going to be here. And that the smartest strategy is just to come up with survival techniques. But that's just not the case. Racism and racial hierarchies and white supremacy are social constructs that were created. And if they can be created, then they can be uncreated. Now, they were created over decades and centuries. So uncreating them is going to take a long fucking time. But it's going to take also a thoughtful, deliberate approach. And that's kind of the second half of today's discussion. So the first half is talking about the role of memorials and monuments and creating this system. And then the second half is going to be talking about dismantling it specifically with an eye on addressing monuments and memorials and, and the idea of storytelling. Last bit of parenthetical notes. Remember, like every single episode in this podcast, and that's why there are so many episodes and so many episodes to come. The system of white supremacy that existed and continues to exist in the U.S., the systemic racism, the explicit and implicit racism, the institutionalized discrimination that exists in this country has not and does not grow out of one single factor or thing. I think I've used this metaphor in the past, and if not, fuck it, I'll use it now. It's a mosaic. It's a vast, complex, often invisible mosaic of hundreds of factors. And so once again, if, as I'm talking about monuments and memorials and the lost cause mythology that is still celebrated throughout the South, I don't want to give anyone the, the impression that I'm attempting to oversimplify humans and human psychology and sociology in the role of history. And it's not as simple as saying if we don't have any more Confederate monuments and memorials and any schools and streets and bridges named after white supremacist dickheads, then incidents like what I described a few minutes ago wouldn't happen. But I will make the argument that the less we have monuments and memorials in schools and streets and bridges named after white supremacist dickheads who, who either fought for the Confederacy or, or fought after the Civil War to maintain this pure image of the Confederacy, the less we have those things, I do think that by degrees, we lessen the chances of racialized violence existing. And so the more we chip away at this mosaic, the more we do have a positive impact on creating the type of communities that I think most of us at least ostensibly claim to want. So let me give you a brief overview. If you don't live in the South and if you're not from Virginia, how ubiquitous symbols of the Confederacy are. 
And if you do live in the South and do live in Virginia, these symbols are also so ubiquitous that you may fail to even notice them. So this overview will help you whether you're a non-Southerner or a Southerner. For instance, growing up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, two rival high schools, one of, two of them were named after Confederate military leaders. One of them, the most famous Confederate military leader, Robert E. Lee. The other one, a very, very, very obscure Confederate military leader. I'm not even sure if he was a general. A man named Turner Ashby. So two high schools within a 20-mile radius are named after Confederate military leaders. Sidebar, the one that was named after Robert E. Lee High School has just in the last two years changed its name. And you can imagine the fights that occurred in Stanton, Virginia, when their only public high school, Robert E. Lee High School, changed this name to Stanton High School. I actually taught at that high school at one point in my teaching career. And, and I'll talk about my experiences there. That's going to come up in season four. Because I, I really am. I know I go in a million directions, but I really am trying to keep these seasons chronological. So we're still in kind of my teenage years, mostly for this episode. But I'll come back. I'll circle back in season four. So there's, there's some foreshadowing, something to look forward to in season four. We'll talk about my days at Robert E. Lee High School and how fucking interesting and complicated that was. But so we got two high schools within a 20-mile radius of where I grew up that were named for Confederate military leaders. There's even a monument to Turner Ashby and where he died, like three miles from my house. Not to mention Stonewall Jackson High School is about 40 miles, maybe 35 miles from where I grew up. And then they're in Northern Virginia. And these, I think some of these schools have recently in the last year or two changed their names. There was an R.E. Lee High School in Northern Virginia. And I believe there's another Stonewall Jackson High School. And then now that I live in the Richmond area, there's a Jefferson Davis High School. There used to be a Jeb Stewart High School in Northern Virginia. They have recently changed their name. So clearly Confederate shit is everywhere in Virginia. And if you live in another southern state, I guarantee you, you see it as well, especially if you're in the southeast. I've even been to Georgia's Stone Mountain, which is their miniature Mount Rushmore to Confederate leaders. And that thing is fucking huge and disgusting and the most obvious display of glorifying the Confederacy. But it's not just Confederate leaders that are glorified throughout the South. It's other individuals who own slaves, who enslaved other humans who are glorified and celebrated, and we rarely even talk about the fact that they enslaved other humans. Although that's begun to change. Growing up, we didn't talk about it. So in the 90s and the 80s, it didn't get talked about. We're starting to talk about the fact that these individuals enslaved others. But we'll get to that in the second part of today's episode. And the individuals I'm talking about are more revolutionary heroes. Thomas Jefferson, in his university, and UVA has begun to start to open up and, and discuss the role of enslaving other humans in its past. Obviously, George Washington, another son of Virginia, quote unquote, James Madison, who has a university named after him in Harrisonburg. He had no affiliation with the university. He was long since dead before the university chose him as their namesake. James Monroe, to a lesser extent. Woodrow Wilson, who was born in Stanton, Virginia, who was racist as fuck. We don't, as a society, we're still beginning to talk about that. We're just beginning to talk about that. So my point being is that members of the Confederacy, like the R.E. Lees, the Stonewall Jacksons, the Turner Ashby's, the Jeb Stewart's, the Jefferson Davises, because mind you, I live in Richmond, where up until the summer of 2020, there were monuments everywhere to these Confederate leaders. Now, the only monument that remains, and hopefully for not much longer, is the Robert E. Lee Monument. 
Although the way that people have reclaimed that monument and made it a symbol of fighting back against systemic racism and against white supremacy kind of makes removing that monument complicated in my mind. I think the Statue of Lee should be removed, but the pedestal, which which the people of Richmond and the people of Virginia have reclaimed, should be left with all of its art and the memorials to the black victims of police brutality that surround that monument should be reclaimed. But right now, the city and the state and all these different organizations and individual landowners are in kind of fights over what to do about that memorial and monument. And we'll get to that in a second. But I just wanted to point out with this this little trip around Virginia, and I didn't even cover 15% of the the streets, the schools, the memorials, the monuments, the statues. I believe there's a statue in Charlottesville still. It might have been removed. The statue that sparked all the white supremacist violence from the summer of 2017. I think it's still in a park. It might have been removed. Or Lee Davis Highway. Like the Confederacy is everywhere. And even if you peel back from the Confederacy, people who owned, and owned goes in quotes, but people who engaged in the enslavement of others memorializing them is everywhere. And I'm talking about our revolutionary, quote unquote, founding fathers everywhere in Virginia and everywhere in the South. That shit is ubiquitous. So what's the point I'm making? That this shit is everywhere. So what? I think what happens when this shit is everywhere, when these names of these people are everywhere, and when we don't discuss the role they played in either enslaving others or fighting in a war so that others could continue to be enslaved, We don't tell the full story of the past. I think that's obvious in 2021. I hope it's obvious by now. I saw it on ESPN last week. And I went to JMU, by the way. I have a degree from JMU. In some ways, it's a great university. It still has a long way to go in terms of addressing issues of systemic racism currently and in its namesake. But I'm watching football the other weekend as James Madison University is playing Sam Houston State in FCS football playoffs in the semifinals. And they do one of those, you know, little funny PR graphic things where they compare James Madison and Sam Houston. Sam Houston, for those of y'all who aren't history buffs, played a large role in the founding of first the Republic of Texas and then later what becomes the state of Texas. And James Madison, we all know who he is, former president, father of the Constitution, so on and so forth. And they have these graphics of these two men in kind of a silly way, career achievements, height, weight, all that. And the announcers are just kind of comparing them in a, in a lull in the action. And what was interesting to me and sad and depressing is that nowhere in either of these graphics did it mention that both of these men were lifelong slave owners. Well, that Sam Houston played a key role in Texas's war of independence from Mexico and the creation of the Texas Republic, which was entirely based on the idea that wealthy Texas landowners wanted to continue to enslave other humans, despite the fact that it was illegal in Mexico and violated their constitution. Like the whole state of Texas as an individual sovereign entity was created because of slavery. It was like kind of a prelude and a preview to our own civil war in terms of the causational factors. But we don't talk about that. And of course, the ESPN announcers weren't going to talk about that. But I think that's beginning to change. I think as we take down monuments and as people, whether it's faculty members or groups on campuses at the University of Virginia, at James Madison University are beginning to talk about the role that these individuals played in the enslavement of others. And I think individual history teachers at the middle school and high school level in the last 10 to 20 years are increasingly beginning to talk about the, the role that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and James Monroe and Turner Aspey and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stewart and Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens and so on and so forth played 
in creating a system that enslaved millions and creating a system of white supremacy that ensured that that system of enslaving others could be maintained. I think we're beginning to talk about that more and more. And that's a step in the right direction. But we better be very fucking careful, human beings, that we only view that as a first step and not as the ending step. Because if not, if all we do is talk about the role that those men I just listed and countless others played in enslaving others and profiting from that enslavement and the white supremacist system that grew out of that enslavement, if all we do is talk about that, I don't think we're going to get to a place in our society where the racialized white supremacist violence that I described at the beginning of this episode is going to disappear. And I'll tell you why that is. But first, we got to back up. I want to go back to the the era before we talked about the enslavement of millions of people of African descent in our country. Because that era is the longest era, right? Pretty much beginning with the end of the Civil War. And I'm talking about in mainstream circles. From the beginning of the end of the Civil War up until the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, the Lost Cause mythology persisted at least throughout the South, but I would argue throughout the country. The Confederacy might have lost the Civil War, but they won the narrative. It's one of the the rare instances in history where history was not written by the winners. And the reason that may be is because of white supremacy. And people from the North, people from the Union were all too comfortable to ignore the real reasons the Civil War was fought, to ignore the enslavement of millions of people of African descent that caused the Civil War. Because remember, don't get it twisted, the enslavement of millions of human beings that existed in our country from 1619 up until 1865, the legalized enslavement of millions of people in our country, created billions, if not trillions of dollars of of wealth for the entire country, not just for those people who were the quote unquote slave owners. The enslavement of others was the driving force in our economy up until the Civil War. Northern textile mills, northern banks, railroad companies, landowners, insurance companies, investors, All of that was tied into the enslavement of others, not to mention the consumers who purchased the products that were either directly or indirectly created by the labor of those who were enslaved. So that's one reason why I think the Lost Cause mythology has metastasized throughout the country, because it left all of white America off the hook to just not talk about slavery. And that's what the Lost Cause mythology does. That's what these monuments did. Well, it did two things, I would argue. The first thing is, I would imagine that for black Americans, it's just like a a fucking middle finger in their face. Like if you're a black American who sees a statue of R.E. Lee or Jeb Stewart or Jefferson Davis or Turner Ashby, or you see a street or a high school named after these people, or you hear about George Washington or James Madison or Thomas Jefferson glorified and celebrated ad nauseum, It's a big fuck you every time. And Jefferson, for one, despite the fact that that we as a society have started to acknowledge his slave owning and Monticello, his birthplace, has started to acknowledge the role of enslavement and the role he played in enslaving others. We still won't come out often enough in history books and in history classes and call him what he is. Also, we don't call him a rapist. We talk about Sally Hemings. And this relationship he had with someone who was legally his property. But we're still a little reluctant to call him a rapist. And we still imply that theirs was a loving relationship. And maybe it was. But it's also a relationship based on sexual assault. If she's legally his property and has no ability to say no to him or to consent to him, then that's rape. 
And it doesn't matter if it wasn't rape in his eyes or in the eyes of the law at the time. It doesn't make it less rape, right? Like, so we still have some, some ways to go, but we've gotten better. We're starting to talk about enslavement a lot more in this country. We'll get back to that in a second, though. But I just wanted to point out that all these symbols of the Confederacy everywhere, everywhere throughout the South are just giant middle fingers to black people and to people who were descended from the millions of humans that were enslaved in this country for so long. It's a big F you. You're not welcome. You're not part of the fabric of this community. So that's one effect. Another effect of all these symbols is that it erases the enslavement of millions of people and the people who were enslaved. It erases them from our conversations. It erases them from our history. Because these monuments and these memorials and these school names and these street names become just kind of boring symbols of, of men. When all we do is talk about Thomas Jefferson and his publishing or writing of the Declaration of Independence and his creation of the University of Virginia and his time as president, and we, all we talk about for George Washington is his bravery during the American Revolution and his statesmanship during the early years of our republic. If all we talk about with James Madison is how he played such an outsized role in crafting the U.S. Constitution, if all we talk about with R.E. Lee is how he fought for the state of Virginia because he was being loyal, or how Stonewall Jackson was a brilliant tactician, or Jeb Stewart was a brave horseman, if all we talk about are all those things, guess what we don't have time to talk about? The enslavement of millions of people that they directly were involved in. So that was the problem for decades in this country. By glorifying the Confederacy and by glorifying white men who enslaved others, we erased millions of people from the story. And one of the consequences of erasing millions of people from the story is that it also erases their legacy. It erases their descendants. So that that instance of racialized violence that happened in the early 90s that involved some of my friends fearing for their lives because they were either black or because they were friends with someone who was black starts to make a lot more sense. Because if you erase millions of people, millions of people of African descent from history, then you're also erasing them from the present, at least for many people. Because if you don't talk about enslavement and its centrality to American history, then how are those white boys who carried guns and bats and other forms of weapons into that party, how are they supposed to make sense of the existence of black people in America? How are they supposed to view black people as members of their family if they have never been told stories of black people because we as a society have been so busy glorifying white men and white men who enslaved others that we haven't had time to tell the stories of those who were enslaved. So that's the danger of erasure. And so our solution recently has been, and by recently, I mean very recently, last 20 years or so, when I went to Monticello in the 80s, they weren't talking about Sally Hemings, I can tell you that. The word slavery never got mentioned. So this is a very, very recent solution. The solution, which I would argue, and I'm about to argue, is well-meaning but, but vastly incomplete. The solution has been to, con- to bring the story of the enslavement of millions of people of African descent, bring it into the light. To tear down statues in many cases. This summer, it was early July, it wasn't July 4th, but it was like the second or third. I was in the crowd watching this company who had been contracted out, who had a giant crane and been contracted out to remove this bronze statue of Stonewall Jackson off the pedestal of Monument Avenue in Richmond. I was in the crowd of of hundreds of people who were watching this as a light rain fell and as we all kind of collectively collectively made sense of what we were seeing. That was a cool fucking moment. I'm not going to lie. And you could see it in the faces of people in my community, especially the black people in that crowd. You could see what that moment meant. 
But our solution, I digress, surprise, surprise, our solution has been to start talking about the enslavement of millions of people and to start renaming high schools. Jeb Stewart High School in Northern Virginia is now Justice High School. Not sure if that's the best replacement name. I'll let you decide. That seems like something a PR firm came up with. And to take down statues and to start talking about the enslavement of others that George Washington and James Madison and James Monroe and Thomas Jefferson and Jeb Stewart and Robert E. Lee were involved in. But we need to be careful. We need to be very, very careful. Because that solution is incredibly incomplete and dangerous. Because just like erasure threatens to put black people in a category of other by removing them from the American family and removing the stories of their past from the American family, if all we do is talk about black people and people of African descent, if all we do is talk about them as victims of slavery, Yes, we are no longer erasing them, but we've only taken a half step, a quarter step at best towards what we really need to do because we still put them in this other category and we're still defining them, if we're not careful at least, defining them almost exclusively through a lens of enslavement. And we're still limiting the stories we can tell. And I myself, as a history teacher for almost 20 years, I know I have been guilty of this. And as I continue to grow as a professional and as a teacher, I try to be less and less guilty of this every day. But I'm not sure if I'm explaining clearly what I mean. And what I mean simply is that we cannot just talk about black Americans, past or present, as either people who were enslaved or the descendants of people who were enslaved. Because if that's all we do, then all we've done is go from erasure to enslavement. And neither one of those categories allow black people past or present or future to be fully human. We haven't allowed them to join the family that they have always been part of, whether we want to admit it or not, the American family, the human family. We've boxed them in. So yes, telling stories of the enslavement of millions of people of African descent is crucial. And every time that we talk about Washington and Madison and Jefferson, we need to talk about how they were involved in the enslavement of others. And the same thing, every time we talk about Robert E. Lee and Jeb Stewart and Stonewall Jackson, we need to talk about their role in enslaving others and creating a system of white supremacy. But we need to talk about so much more. We need to talk about the hundreds of thousands of free people of African descent who lived in the U.S. and lived in the South. We need to talk about black musicians like Francis Johnson, who lived in Philadelphia before the Civil War. We need to talk about David Walker, an unenslaved, a free black man from North Carolina who moved to Boston and was advocating for violent slave revolution in the 1820s. We need to talk about the black female ministers, once again, who were free and were not enslaved, who lived in the South and the North. We need to talk about Benjamin Banneker a lot fucking more. We need to talk about the doctors and lawyers and architects and masons and sometimes even slave owners. There were black slave owners in a very small percentage, but there were some black slave owners in the pre-Civil War era in parts of this country. We need to tell all the fucking stories. And even when we're talking about enslavement, we need to be careful. And I've tried to be careful in this podcast and I try to be careful as a teacher to not use the word slave. And not solely define people's identity based on their condition of bondage. We need to talk about the, the people and the collective communities that were enslaved throughout this country. And all its horrificness and all its tragedy, but all of its humanity as well. We need to talk about the numerous plantations in the South 
that were fucking run by enslaved people. And I don't mean run just in a physical labor sense, but I mean the books, the accounting, the investing of money was in the hands of enslaved people. We need to talk about the enslaved watermen who knew the rivers and bays and bayous and coastal waterways of southeastern America better than anyone else and who made sure that America's economy before the Civil War could grow. That's what we need to do. We need to make sure our entire frame of reference is vastly expanded. Because as much as slavery is central to the American story, excuse me, and it is, it's not the only part of the story, especially the story of black Americans. We need to make sure we don't go from erasure to enslavement and then say, pat ourselves on the back, white America, and say, we did it. We now have fully addressed our our sins. Because if that's all we do, then that event that happened that I talked about at the beginning of this episode is still going to happen. If we go from erasure to enslavement and that's it, then all we've done is still othered. We've still placed people who are the descendants of those who were enslaved in a different category. They're not us because we haven't talked about them as doctors and mothers and accountants and bookkeepers and lawyers. We haven't talked about their triumphs. We haven't talked about their frustrations. We haven't talked about their beauty and their love. We've just simply talked about them as victims. We've just given them pity now. And we owe Black Americans today and future black Americans and even past black Americans so much more than our fucking pity. What the fuck are they going to do with our pity? We owe them the full fucking panoply of the human narrative of which they have always been a part of. Because we do that with white folks. We tell all the fucking stories. The important, the unimportant, the dull, the exciting, the beautiful, the tragic. I should say the beautiful, the ugly, but I was on a roll. We need to do that with black Americans, past, present, and future. We need to go beyond just simply stories of enslavement. Because if we don't, then the lost cause is still existing. Then the lost cause is still defining our discourse. And then incidences of racialized white supremacist violence where my friends were in danger of being killed are not going to disappear. We've got to fully embrace the black experience. And to do that, we have got to talk about more than the enslavement. And even when we're talking about the enslavement, we've got to talk about more than the enslavement. We've got to talk about the religions. We've got to talk about the language and the culture and the food and the accounting and the banking and the inventions. We've got to tell the full fucking story. And if you're no longer in school, if you're not in high school, if you're not in college, then you've got to start finding those stories on your own. And it's not as hard as you might think. The Library of Congress is starting to add more and more documents. That's one place to start if you want some primary sources. Amazon has something called the John Hope Franklin series of books and it's 59 books that try to cover every angle of the African-American experience and yes many of them deal with the enslavement of 4 to 5 million African-Americans or people of African descent but there are books in that series and if you go to Amazon and search John Hope Franklin series you'll find it there are books in that series that talk about free black people that lived in this country and that fought in every single war we fought in and that have lived in every single southern city before and after the Civil War. We've got to tell those stories. John Hope Franklin, recently deceased in the last, I want to say 10, 12 years, African-American historian who has done tons of research 
on the black experience in America going back to 1619. But we can't simply go from erasure to enslavement and then say we're done. Because black stories are so much more than slave stories. Black Americans are so much more than the descendants of those who were enslaved. We've got to tell all the fucking stories and seek out all the stories. And continue to seek them out and continue to tell them. That's the solution to the lost cause. And that's the only thing that I think will one day eventually make sure that events like a bunch of angry white men with guns and bats showing up at a party of mixed race teenagers. That's the only thing that'll make sure events like that don't happen. Because if we start telling all the stories, then black Americans stop being other. They stop being either nothing, ghosts. That's the erasure version. They stop being simply enslaved people. That's the enslaved version. They start being fully human. In all that that means. Those are the stories and that is the strategy we need to take as a society. And that's as a history teacher, the accountability I have to have for myself to make sure that when we talk about black Americans and the black American experience, we're not just talking about slavery and civil rights. Cause even if that's what I do every single day of the year in my U S history class, I haven't given my students the full picture and I haven't gone nearly far enough in dismantling this edifice of white supremacy that's all around us. Taking down the statues is nice. It's definitely not nothing. Telling stories of enslavement all the time, every time white slave owners are mentioned, is nice. It's definitely not nothing. But together, those are far from enough. Taking down statues, and talking about slavery till we're blue in the face is not going to do our black brothers and sisters the justice that we need to, to give them. It's not going to fully welcome them into the American community. It's not telling their whole story, past, present, or future. And that's what we've got to do, in my opinion. Hope y'all didn't get lost. I feel like, I know I say this every fucking episode, but I feel like there are a lot of twists and turns and parenthetical notes and sidebars and tangents. And if we did get lost, I hope you at least enjoyed the journey. Tune in very soon for episode 10 as we wrap season two up. Like always, I want to hear from y'all. I'm not on social media ever, but I can be reached on Facebook Messenger. I do have that app and I do get those messages. I can be reached via email, jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. Obviously, some of y'all who know me real well can reach me by phone or text, but I, I love hearing stories, comments, criticisms, questions from any and all listeners. I try not to have a thin skin when it comes to this shit because this is really just me rambling. And like always, I'm grateful and humble for y'all even taking the time out of your day to listen to my ramblings. Stay well. Peace and love. And until next episode of Journeys into Whiteness. Bye, y'all.